The Ziggler Show comes from the legacy of Zig Ziggler and brings together personal and professional growth, business success, and faith. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this episode, change your personality. Consider your personality was not implanted in you and it's not concrete. It was primarily trained. Well, the concept itself is controversial and either exciting or scary. If you are who you are because of how you've been shaped, then the truth is you can absolutely reshape yourself. That is incredibly empowering, but also makes us accountable for who and how we are. And we're not able just to say, Hey, I am what I am. I mean, this is a root cause issue of personal development. So Dr. Ben Hardy joins us today and he takes the personality profile industry to task in a massive way. He just came out with his book of research on the topic. It's called Personality Isn't Permanent, Break Free from Self-Limiting Beliefs and Rewrite Your Story. Uh, which as of its writing right now is ranked in the top 1000 books on earth in Amazon. And friends, every guest I have on the show has an incredible message to share, but sometimes they bring truly paradigm shifting revelatory information. Well, this is one of those shows. Ben was with me over two years ago in episode 552 of the Ziggler show with his last book and message, which was also just incredible. It was called willpower doesn't work. You can check it out episode 552. And I refer to that so often in my life. Well, Ben Hardy has a PhD in organizational psychology. His website gets hundreds of thousands of views monthly. From 2015 to 2018, he was the number one writer in the world on medium.com. And he's always at the top of their rankings there. Uh, his blogs have been read by over a hundred million people and are published everywhere. Uh, you can connect with Ben at benjaminhardy.com and he's got a six page future self checklist and a 23 minute training uh, with the best science from the book, Personality Isn't Permanent, uh, that you can get there for free. Uh, you can get the book anywhere you buy books. So I'll bring Ben to you as soon as I share some great products and services. Well, Ben, I had you on the show. It's actually been over two years ago. I didn't realize it's been that long uh, on your last book, Willpower Doesn't Work. And I am a fan. I was thinking about it. If, if, if I had a dollar for every time I've mentioned it on a show, I'm looking for credit here. Uh, it'd at least be a good bottle of dry red wine, I think. You actually sent me copies. I shared them with my family. Uh, such a fan of that book. And now you come out with Personality Isn't Permanent. Uh, you've got a PhD in organizational psychology. I had to look that up and seem to be taking some of the tenets of personal development to task. What was the catalyst behind that path for you? Like the path in general or this specific book? Well, both of them because they're both kind of hitting. I mean, willpower and personality, man, those are, those are like pillars of personal development and you're, you're batting at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't really try to be like someone who's just like picking away at things, but I, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of inconsistencies and I, I just, I try to find true principles, but also true science, you know yeah. what I mean? And I try to find the most effective way to do things. And sometimes that means like shining a, a magnifying glass on some of the areas of weakness in people's perspectives or yeah. just where there's literally no scientific backing to prove it. And so, you know, I, you kind of have to, you know, I, I like doing that. It, it, it gives me something to angle my thinking off of. And obviously with this book, Personality Isn't Permanent, 
there's a lot of pervasive kind of, from my perspective, destructive ideas that really can limit people's perspectives. And so I just felt like I needed to put those things in, in the forefront. Well, we're going to get into that in just a second here. I did look at your Facebook page and I don't know if it's, you know, you or folks promoting the book or even if it's just the folks like me who are, you know, interviewing you, but there's a lot of, hey, Ben is taking on the $2 billion personality, you know, profile industry. And I do, I like the contrarian approach because it's, um, oh, sometimes we do need to shake things up. And, and as you look at that, as you look at personal development, I mean, do these come from, uh, I mean, do you find yourself somewhat, uh, can I, I don't know, frustrated is the right word with yeah, what you said, what is the, the purveying tenets of personal development? And are you looking at those and going, they're not working? Or you're frustrated with how it's leading people astray sometimes? No, no, not always. I mean, I, I actually think that a lot of, I, I love personal development. You know what I mean? Love Ziegler. You know, one of my favorite quotes is that your input shapes your outlook, you know, yeah. and that your outlook shapes your performance. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of personal development. But I feel like it's important to try to go to the next level. You know, yeah. like it's not enough just to keep repeating what's been said. I think you need to take the thinking to the next level. So you have, I'm going to dig real quick before we dive into the book on just you and your work. I mean, you have been literally the top, the number one writer on Medium for years. And I looked recently, I even typed in a top Medium writer and your face was like the right there in the middle. When you look at that as uh, we have so many people who are writers, who are aspiring writers, speakers, authors, presenters. So I'm curious too, just on that, you did well and you had a pretty fast trajectory. And so we're talking about the topics here of, you know, maybe a, not necessarily a contrarian approach, but kind of, you know, poking some of the norms here. That's the content. So there's obviously the content you write. There's also the way that you write it. So when I look and just say, gosh, he's a top medium, that's a big deal. What would you, what would you attribute it to? I mean, if somebody says, okay, look, I want to do what you're doing, Ben, what do I do? What do you attribute it to some? A lot of things. Um, So I started writing massively. Like I started putting my information out on the internet back in 2015. I had actually decided five years before that. So in 2010 that I wanted to be a writer, I was serving a church mission and that, that mission actually totally blew my mind and got me interested in psychology in the first place. But it took like five years for me to actually start learning, like to conceptualize a goal and to conceptualize a process. And you really need a goal and a process to have motivation. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I got committed to the idea that I was going to become a professional writer. You know, this was during the first year of my PhD program. And so once I kind of clarified that future version of myself as a writer, then I was like, I, I, I zoned in on the goal, which was yeah. for me a six figure book deal. And so everything I did was to achieve that end. You know, the goal is the thing that shapes the process. So like I started writing and educating myself from the perspective and I learned that in order to get a six figure book contract or more, you needed at least 150,000 email subscribers. And so like, wow. I was like, I was like, okay, I need to write at the level where I can get that many email subscribers. I didn't know how to do it, but that was the mindset that I had going in. Uh, as far as like my process of writing, I've journaled intensely since 2000, probably 2008. Yeah. Uh, I started that on the mission and I've, I've filled stacks and stacks of journals. I fill about a stack. I fill about a new journal every single month and journaling really just helps me to get comfortable writing in a flow without editing myself. Yeah. Um, I do have like, you know, pre-writing routines, you know, where I would like meditate, pray about what I'm writing about, um, 
I'm, and so I, 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 for me, a lot of it's about putting yourself into the right frame of mind before you write and then getting the structure right. So for me, a lot of it has to do with what's the main idea I'm trying to present here and what are like the three to five sub ideas. If I can have that, which is what I would consider like the skeleton, if I can build the bones, then is all I have to do is put myself into the right frame of mind, which, you know, journaling, exercise, prayer, meditation, and then just bang. I just write as as honestly and as intensely as I can. And I just let 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 the structure guide me. And I just don't ever edit, edit myself. And then I just put more and more stuff out. And a lot of the stuff that I write, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that's gone extremely viral, I didn't expect to go viral. Yeah. But one of the things that really was an initial good teaching that I got was to write stuff. I, I like the book by Cal Newport, which is so good they can't ignore you. Yep. So like, I've just always thought if I can like, examine what's out there and I understand the field, you know, as far as the topics that are, are being written about on some of the subjects, if I could write stuff in a way that's so good it can't be ignored and then I can get really good at marketing it, it's gonna be successful. So like when I was writing this book, I just genuinely believe that it w eventually won't be ignored, yeah. you know, because that's the mindset I had going in. Is just like, how can I make this so good? It, it literally can't be ignored. Well, and obviously very little of your writing seems to be ignored as people are reading it in droves and you're ranked as high as you are. When you, uh, you look at your business model, we do have, and again, I know I'm jumping behind the scenes on the topic here, but we have Go so, ahead, I love it. Well, we I have so this. many entrepreneurs, so many business people, so many people who want to. So is your primary business model today from a revenue standpoint is it writing specifically or okay, go ahead tell what else is no. happening no like i mean you know i'm getting multi-six figure book deals at this point um i get paid you know thousands of dollars just for like page views on like medium as an example but i mean i have over three i have an email list of over three hundred fifty thousand emails yep. and so like I have various programs. You know, I've got like a $1,000 annual program, which has 1,500 people in it. Um, you know, I, I mean, I have lots of different tiers of things that occur. So I, I, I do write multiple books and the books and the articles funnel people into programs. I have a new program that's like associated with this book launch, which is gonna be $150,000, uh, sorry, $150. And so like the goal is to sell 5,000 of that, yep. you know? and during this book launch. And so mostly it's, mostly it's, uh, automated, um, online courses, which are behind all those content. So like people would read an article, go to a landing page and then go through a sequence where they get a webinar that would take people to, uh, uh, you know, a webinar that would get them into one of these programs. That's so, where most of my income comes. Yeah. From. So again, we're back to the power and the value of having that audience that you've built up over time consistently again you got a pretty good one you know pretty fast trajectory but i appreciate that hey, something else just on you know the business model and that yeah. i started doing here with ziggler we do have a high uh, amount of faith of faith-based folks here too who are looking to do something vocationally that matters to them in yes. a bigger way has a bigger purpose i know your christianity plays into uh, everything you do how do you, when you talked about, you know, praying and, and meditating before you do this, the spirit of what you're doing. I mean, I pray before every article I write. I pray, yeah. I, I pray before I write anything. Yeah. Yeah. I pray before these types of things. I mean, to me, it just puts me in the right frame of mind. Yeah. So that part, as far as a, do you look at that with your work specifically as not that God doesn't bless the fact that we're selling a watermelon to somebody, you know, who needs a watermelon, but that from your messaging, from your audience, well, you've got a lot of influence for one, uh, with, that side of an email list with everything you're doing with the books that are going out. 
Do you see that as a way to share your faith, to love on people? Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot, I'm, I'm not as overt. I'm actually uh-huh. getting ready to sell my next book, which has a lot to do with hope. Um, you know, it's still going to be a very deep psychology and self-improvement book, but there's going to be a lot more faith in God in it. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, a lot of people, when they read my stuff, they'll just they just love that it's jam-packed with science. Because, I mean, I love the psychology and I love that. But I still get emails all the time that say, like, you know, I feel the spirit when I write your, I, I read your work and it yeah. helps me increase my faith in God, even though, like, you're not specifically talking about Although I'm not, like, afraid to talk about sure. it. I, it's just not, like, at the forefront of all that I say. But I'm not afraid in my articles to write about God or write about prayer or things like that or gratitude. But, yeah, a lot of people say, you know, it's very obvious to me that you believe in God, <laughs> even even though you're not even saying it. Was that So was that a conscious thing? Because we know, yeah, look at it as an author. I mean, you can go down the route of being a faith-based author. There's faith-based publishers and uh, uh, publishing, you know, uh, publishing houses out there. You can go that route, obviously. You can decide not to and not be as overt. Sometimes I've seen people who made a conscious decision and some just said, you know, it's just, I'm not that overt with it. It's a part of who I am, just like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this and I'm that as well. Uh, I recently had a Christian music, music artist um, who apparently denied being on the Dove Awards. They didn't want to be there and get it because They didn't want to be specifically pigeonholed as a faith-based writer, they said, I'm a writer and that's part of who I am. And they didn't want that. So I, I see people struggle with that, not struggle with that. I see people question that. If I'm going to come out with a book, do I overtly, you know, talk about my faith? Do I put a fish on the front of the thing, you know, or do I just let it be part of who I am? So with you, was that a conscious like publishing decision or was it just true to your nature in that sense? I wouldn't say true to my nature. I would say it was strategic. Uh, okay. My next book is going to be a lot, you know, and I've already talked to my publisher about it, which is Portfolio, which is yeah. one of the bi- top business publishers through Penguin Random House. I've already, a- I've already asked them, is it all right if I talk about things like God or faith in God, you know, and uh, things like prayer in my books. And they're like, yeah, totally. There's space for that. Um, So I'm definitely going to be moving more in that direction. But I think um, from a strategic standpoint, from a career standpoint, it made sense for me to kind of establish myself as an expert in psychology and in like high performance and in things like that nature. And uh, I do see myself, you know, my future self shifting more towards, and it was my original intent when I became a writer to actually write more towards the religious or spiritual side, but I just got so into this world and I still really love it. And I know that it does a lot of great work, but I'm, I'm going to be swinging more in that direction over time. And I'm not that worried to be fully honest with you, the repercussions on my career. Yeah. I know that like in this world, you're, you're only as good as your last blog post, you know, something like, um, I know that in the future I'll be able to produce and produce and produce. And there's always, the right audiences. And for me, it's just about, you know, increasingly sharing something that I feel is very important for me. This last one that I felt like when I was writing, I was just like, I feel like this is very important. Now I feel given, you know, whether it be recent events or just where my head's at right now. Um, I'm definitely a different person even than I was a year ago when I started writing this book, I'm a different person than I wrote. What part doesn't work? The things that I feel like are very important now, I'm just going to address those. And I just feel like I just have to do what, what is very important and do it the very best I can do it. Yeah. Well, you obviously have, credibility to back you up now and that's one of uh, part of zig's story is being told on stage just don't talk about that god stuff he obviously did not follow that 
He's oh. great. I love him as an example of that. I, mean, I, I love I love his work. He's, he's incredible. He's a good man. <laughs> he is a good man, no doubt. Well, personality styles. I mean, when you look at this, and again, we talked originally about some of the tenets of personal development, and that's got to be right up there, as you know. What was the catalyst for you, not just you know taking an interest in it, but obviously you've devoted a lot. You now have a book. It has been a big part of your research and your work. What was the catalyst to go after personality styles? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, that's just one of the trendy topics. The whole book is so much beyond that. Um, that ends up just being one of the myths I break down in chapter one. <laughs> but it's such like the hot, popular topic that yeah. we have to really hit it on a media side. Um, although... When I was going through my PhD, I was very surprised and intrigued that I learned that all of the type-based personality tests, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagrams, you know, the DISCs, those would be very, you know, looked down upon as a, as a scientist. They're yeah. just not good science. They're, they're not actually measuring how we would view personality. Yeah. Um, they pigeonhole people as an identity. They lead to a fixed mindset. Um, and they're just not, they're just not a good way of... I, you know, they're very stereotypical. You yeah. put people into a box and then that's, that's all that you see. And people then put themselves in that box and that's all they see. So that's, that was very interesting to me. And, you know, we can talk about what personality actually is and how to accurately measure it if you want. But um, the thing that really pushed me to writing this book was studying trauma. Actually, I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, yeah. which is the definitive book on trauma. I was actually interested in understanding how trauma shapes addiction because willpower doesn't work. A big aspect of that book is addiction. Yeah. I came from a background where my father was an extreme addict. My younger brother still is. And I just, that's a big part of my life. And so willpower doesn't work. A big tone of that book is of addressing behavior change as you would overcoming an addiction, um, which willpower would be a very un un an ineffective way to yeah. overcome an addiction. Um, so I was trying to understand that, but what I was really surprised by when I was studying trauma was how much it impacts personality that, you know, and that doesn't, it's not that surprising when you really think about it. negative events that, you know, from the past and a trauma is like any negative emotional experience that really impacts your identity and, and stunts and basically keeps you stuck in the past. And it freezes your personality in the past where you stop developing as a human being. And you're never supposed to actually stop developing as a human being. But right. I think as a culture, we think that personality at some point is overly stable and doesn't change. And, and one of the reasons it does that way is unresolved trauma. So that was one of the things that just pushed me over the edge where I'm like, I really need to write a book that helps, under, helps people understand this concept because it's not what people think it is. You are listening to The Ziggler Show in this episode on personality not being permanent with Dr. Ben Hardy. Next, I ask Ben about the debate of your personality being static, set in stone at birth, uh, to not being, and if it's some of both, what percentage? So we'll dive right back in after I share some great products and services with you. Well, I admittedly grew up uh, with a personal development dad. I took, I think, every personality profile known to man probably more uh, than than two or three times to the point where it's hard to take them now because I know where it's going, I know where it's getting at. But the you know the the that debate was often had: is your personal or your personality static? Is it what it is? What it is? It's a big debate. And I didn't get into it, obviously, to the point that you have, which is why I have you on the show here. But at the time, I remember going back to faith that my first thought was. It, me not being able to change my personality takes away the grace of God. Uh, there's it things, does. Uh, well, Fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, the atonement of Jesus Christ is all about transforming people. And uh, so from a spiritual perspective, 
it'd be pretty devastating if you couldn't change yourself. <laughs> I think it very much is in fundamental contradiction to the gospel. Well, I do too. And so take that and now take today's buzzword. To me, it's a buzzword because I didn't, I wasn't hearing it like I am now, but neuroplasticity, that this brain is something that can be grown and changed and evolved. But honestly, Ben, I think even, even in that talk of neuroplasticity, I don't hear a lot about personality style specifically. And I think, yeah, like what you pointed out that by default, we're just taught to think that we are what we are primarily. And if you look at that, that's probably not a fair question. Cause I still tend to think, okay, I mean, you do have, you have, you've got kids, you got five kids. So having kids was something that helped me in this realm because I saw them come out same genders, you know, same environment and see how different their personalities are. So that's a difference in personality, but it still doesn't address your changing personality. And it still feels like a, you want, I still feel prone to ask this question. Okay. How much of it can you change? You know, how much of it is you already are. I mean, I've always thought, you know, uh, this isn't a personality. It's a propensity though. Math. I don't, I'm not good at it, though I don't like it, so I don't invest myself in it either. So is there a natural aspect of it, or was it just a bent to say, I don't really like it, so I didn't pursue it? That's not a personality issue. That's a Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours issue. Yeah, but that is an aspect of personality. (laughs) Um, You know, like the whole repetition thing. I mean, the the truth is that most people's behavior on a daily basis, they say like 95% of thoughts are a repeat of the thoughts yesterday, 95%-ish of behavior is a repeat of the behavior yesterday, which is generally you subconsciously on autopilot. You're in the same roles, the same environments, the same situations. Um, So yeah, people's personality can be more stable than it needs to be. Um, William James, who is like the, you know, godfather of American psychology from way back when, very famous... His belief was that personality solidified around age 30 because that's when a person's daily, like they, they become married and stuff like that. And and so, yeah, I mean, it, it first off, what the research shows is that your personality is going to be fundamental. You're even your personality. So you're, you're in your like probably late 30s or 40s. Thank you. I'll be 50 in a few months, but thanks. Sweet. So here's, here's what's interesting. So, so I'll point your listeners to a TED Talk by um, Daniel Gilbert. He's a Harvard psychologist. He's been studying this for a long time. His TED Talk's called The Psychology of Your Future Self. Um, he okay. breaks down a lot of his research. But anyways, here's essentially what he's found, is that it's pretty easy if you look back on who you were 10 years ago to notice some big changes. You're mm-hmm. not actually the exact same person you were 10 years ago. You don't see the world the exact same um, and you don't actually have, you may have some of the same habits, um, but you're not actually the exact same person. Right. And a lot of people are very different people. Most, in fact, in most of his research, he asks people, and I've done this, I've asked, are you the exact same person you were? Most people say totally not. And it's interesting, the younger people get, like people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they're like, no, I'm quite a bit different. Yeah. You know, like I can say that I, five years ago, I had zero kids. Now I have five, yeah. you know, um, but you know, and my perspectives and my habits and even my priorities, many of those things, my preferences, personality has a lot to do with preferences, changed. Um, but here's what's interesting is even if people can look back and sense that they've changed a lot. If you actually met me 10 or 12 years ago, all I was doing was playing World of Warcraft 15 hours a day. <laughs> I had zero perspective or purpose in my life. You right. know what I mean? Um, but here's, here's kind of the rub. And this is one of the things that Gilbert found is that most people, even if they've noticed some huge transformation or big change in their, from their current self to their former self, as a rule, most people under project change towards their future. 
most people think that who they are right now is who they're always going to be. It's a, it's a bias. Right, 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 right. That we think we don't spend very, and he said the reason is that we spend very little time truly imagining our future self as a different person. And that's where the psychology research has gone, is you want to view your former self as a different person because you're not actually the same person. You would make different decisions than the former version of you would make. But most people, they don't look at their future self as a totally different person, that they're in a different situation, they've got a different mindset, that they've got different perspectives. They're more mature than you are. They, would ha they have different preferences. And when you can look at your future self as a different person, you can then maybe start making different decisions than you would make today. You can make better informed decisions, but the first step is that very few people actually spend much time truly imagining that. Obviously in the self-improvement world, the people in the Ziegler world probably spend a lot more time imagining their future self. Sure. You know, I, I like the story of, honestly, love the story of Tom Hartman. You know what I mean? You know, that Zig Ziglar used to tell the big uh, overweight guy, yeah. right? Like who totally changed his life. Um, but he got super clear on his future self and started investing big in it. Okay, I'm sitting here with, uh, you're taking me down so many different trails here. I mean, one, going back to uh, what we talked about a second ago about the habit or the personality being, you said repetition, how much repetition is a part of our personality. And I had never thought about it that way of saying, hey, is my personality, we tend to think about it, my personality is it's who I am. It's my genetics. It's, you know, how God no, made me. you just repetitiously doing the same thing. I, but that's, that's a, da I mean, that's, that's a daunting statement to say, no, your person. Your personality is your habit. Uh, it is. It's, what, it's a learned habit. Can't that feel? It's I also your comfort zone, by the way. Comfort zone and personality are very similar concepts. Okay. To do anything outside your comfort zone would kind of by nature be slightly out of your typical way of doing things. Okay, we're going to get deep here because now we're talking about, you know, my person, who I am who I am. And of course, everybody's out there to find who they are. And I know in your book, you're saying, no, you're going to create who you are. That's also kind of daunting though, because it could take the foundation of well, who am I? If I'm just who I am because of habits, do I have any inherent nature in me? Is that a fair course, question? Yeah. I think, I think, you know, there's obviously different perspectives. You can look at this. I think from my standpoint, fundamental to who we are, at least in this life is agent of choice. We're here to make choices. And so I think that choice is is very fundamental okay <laughs> obviously we we all come with different things we were born into a culture we were born with biology um but we can make choices and i think a lot of and i think that you know you're on one side of the corner or the other where you're trying to diminish your ability to make choices or you're trying to maximize it right uh, i'm on the field of maximizing the amount of choice and responsibility that right. i have over my life um but one, there's a, there's a super important distinction here that I want to make, and that's the difference between identity and personality. Okay. They're very different concepts. Identity is actually enormously more important. Uh, this is, I think, what Zig would call self-concept or like your self-image. Um, yeah. That is crucial. Um, very few people are strategic about their self-image or their identity. And your identity is essentially the story that you tell of yourself. It's the way you see yourself, and it's the way you explain yourself to other people. And most people, as a rule, so... One of the reasons why personality can be overly repetitious is unresolved trauma. So there's negative issues from the past that they're just avoiding. And the, one of the other ones obviously would be environment and just staying in a similar environment or roles. One of the major ones though is, is an identity narrative. The way you see yourself and, and most people's identity is very grounded in either who they are right now or who they've been in the past. Right. If you think about if someone asked you who you are and how you would explain yourself, many people speak in highly definitive terms and they're fo focused very exclusively on the present. So like the statement, I am an introvert, as an example, is actually an identity statement. That's not a personality statement. That's saying, this is how I see myself. 
Um, but your identity shapes your behavior and your behavior over time produces your personality. And so most people, they're not thinking about their future self. And one of the problems with those types of personality tests is, is that the label then becomes a huge aspect of their identity. And so when you've formed an identity that's so grounded in the present, which is what Carol Dweck would call a fixed mindset. Carol Dweck right. is the one who, people with a fixed mindset are very defined by the present. If you fail a test, for example, that means you're stupid. You're defined by here. Whereas people with a growth mindset, who you are right now honestly doesn't matter that much. It's very temporary. Who you are in the future matters enormously more than who you are now. You're not defined by who you are now. In fact, you wouldn't state in incredibly definitive terms who you are today. You could hold your current identity a little bit more loosely and target your identity towards a desired future self. Um, but if you're so definitive in your current identity, you're not going to imagine a future self that's totally different than who you are today. Instead, you're going to project a future self that you think is exactly who you are today, which is going to produce similar results. Okay, so let me go back to the introvert statement, because what I'm seeing is well, like we look at genetics, you know, and people, uh, I think, think of the 23andMe genetics to go figure out if they're, you know, one third Scandinavian, whatever that, you know, means to their lives. But in the health and wellness arena, we can look at that and look at propensities that say you have because of X, Y, Z, we can see a propensity for diabetes or propensity. And that's, you know, that's legit. And I think of value. So in the effort to understand myself, you, you mentioned the introvert, I am aware that I can do social really well. I can go and I can be charismatic and, and I can do that. So can my wife. When she comes, when we come away from that, she is energized. I mean, like she can't get enough. She's energized. I'm worn down and I'm looking for a place to retreat to kind of recharge from that. Yeah, I am prone to say I seem to be introverted or I can be an extroverted introvert. I guess one of the reasons is why do we want to label ourselves one, but to understand our makeup so we can tend to it. If I'm totally oblivious of that and I think I'm supposed to be an extrovert and I try to go that route and I can do it well, but then wonder, man, I've been doing this every night for weeks and I, I'm about, I'm about to end myself. There's value in knowing my propensity. Can I say that? Sure. Yeah. So like how we would look at personality, like from a more scientific perspective, there's a, a good theory. It's obviously no, there's no perfect theory. Sure. But this is the most researched theory. It's called the big five. Have you heard of that? Big five factors of personality? No. Huh. Yeah. This is the most researched subject. Like if you're a psychologist, this is the one you look at. Um, and it would break personality into five factors. One of them being extroversion. Okay. Um, one being conscientiousness, which is like how organized or goal oriented you are. One being emotional stability. One being like a mad, like intellect or like openness to new experiences. And then one being like agreeableness, how good you are with people or how just, you know, well, you can form relationships. Um, but when you would take a big five personality test, which I would encourage you to do, um, one of the first things you will find is the structure of the test. Um, most type based personality tests are structured very poorly. They're, they're just not well scientifically designed. Yeah. Um, any like good measure in like psychology would, would base its questions on what we call a Likert scale. Um, so a Likert scale is where you would like answer a question. So I might say like, how energized are you when you're in social situations? Right. Then I would give you a scale from like, let's just say one to one to seven or right. one to five, one being disagree, seven being absolutely in the middle of saying neutral. So you could answer the question anywhere on that scale, yeah. right? But most of those personality tests, the type-based ones, they'll just give you four forced choices, right? But anyways, here's what will happen. If you took a big five personality test, you would get a percentile rank against the general population. Have you ever heard of a, you've heard of a bell curve, yep, right? Absolutely. And generally 
the bell curve means that most people are in the middle and there's a few outliers on both ends, but most people are pretty much in the middle. Um, and you would then get a percentile rank against the general population on where you are on introversion, where you are on organization and conscientiousness, where you are on openness to new experiences. Um, you know, as for me, for an example, I'm like in the probably 55th, I'm probably in like the 60th percentile. But honestly, it was how I scored myself. A lot of this, again, has to do with how you score yourself. Which but you talk about how, being self-reported, which is such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, me and my family, just for fun, recently just took a big five test. Um, the great part about this, honestly, all of those change throughout your life. You're actually going to be different from situation to situation. Yeah. There's no cut edge like this is who you are and this is who you always will be. But just as a rule, you're probably somewhere in the middle and you're probably someone who likes to be alone and you're probably someone who loves to be in social groups. I would say that when it comes to you, when it comes to you being exhausted in in social groups, more than just that it's your innate tendency to get exhausted around people, my guess is if you actually looked at the social situation, it may have resonated more with your wife's values or goals than yours. You know, like hmm. the things that energize me are the things that obviously reflect with what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, so like I can do literally, and I will just say, I have done over 200 podcasts since COVID. And like, that's a freaking lot. That's and lot. I don't consider myself a huge extrovert, but I'm energized by the things that help me accomplish my goals. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's not relevant to me, it's going to not be enjoyable. So my guess is more than your personality, various social situations just don't, ref don't, they're not exciting or relevant to you. That has nothing to do with you being an introvert or an extrovert. Do you totally... Uh, you're totally right. You know, even thinking about you're telling my, me, yeah, you're blaming I, it on your introversion. But in reality, you just don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. My wife does. And she is also when she's there, man, she is just she's one of those people. She is who she is. She she's not acting. She's not performing. I am. I'm so conscientious of myself, of not offending somebody that it's more of a performance. So I'm spending that time. So you're exhausting yourself mm -hmm. trying to be someone that you're not even true. You're not even, you're not pretending, you're not actually just being yeah. who you want to be or you're not being who you are. You're pretending in a lot of ways. So we're that's back. A really amazing. That's an amazing self, uh, you know, admit, you know, admittance. Well, send me an invoice. Uh, we'll settle okay. up after the show. You should be the one sending me the invoice, dude. You just broke through a trauma. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> no, it's it's true. It's it's pieces of things that I've been aware of. But I mean, you're hitting back on why on some of the issues that I have uh, experienced with personality profiles. Well, and you start off the book with the story of your marriage of the you know, wife being concerned because you were put in this personality profile only to find out later it was a misdiagnosis or limited. I had the same thing. I had, I've, I've had multiple times had that happen. I've got a personality style here and then I do something over here and somebody go, well, that's contrary to your personality style. My only answer in my, you know, ignorance at that point was, well, apparently we're not all thoroughbreds to whatever these things say. Well, the real answer is that there's no such thing as a personality style okay. or what we would actually call a personality type. That's just okay. not really how personality works because it's so much more contextual like you in one situation are going to be different than you in a different situation right um and that, so like yeah. you can't actually just say that you're the same type in every situation that's a really let's just say that's a very elementary view of people it is true i, well, I like that as a muse for all of us to think about because i for one uh and, and maybe this is you know maybe my, my wife is more 
has a tendency to be herself wherever she goes. I don't. I'll tend to morph myself. Maybe that's too much salesperson in me to, you know, mirror people and uh, and to try to appeal to them and appease them. But it does belie. Well, then who am I? Because in this arena, they see me as very extroverted, charismatic, outgoing, uh, directive, leading. And over here, gosh, he's just kind of a wallflower. Well, then who am I? Well, if you actually were to watch even your wife throughout a day, she would reflect many different behaviors. Yeah, she's maybe pretty consistent in the upbeat. She sounds amazing. I'd love to meet your wife. <laughs> she um, is. But I mean, if she you is. were to actually watch her, she's got many different sides and shades. You know, she's not just one. I mean, she's probably pretty consistent, sounds like. Yeah. But the really cool part about really all of this for people who are in the Ziegler world, who want to make big transformations in their life, for the majority of people, and again, from a bell curve perspective, most people in the middle, it's just true that the best way to predict someone's future behavior is by looking at their past. Um, that reason for that. And so what I'm saying is, is that, yeah, people may be a little bit pretty consistent. The reason for that is not an innate and inflexible personality. The reason for that is other things. Think about it just as one example. When was the last time you actually did something completely new that you flapped at and failed at miserably? Like just as one example, we have 18 month old twins. Um, we live in Florida. People have swimming pools here. So we put our 18 month old twins through extreme swimming lessons. And for the first three or four months, they hated it. Like you could say it went against their natural tendencies. Um, or it was not immediately obvious that they could get good at this because they hated it. They cried, they screamed and they didn't enjoy it. Fast forward to three or four months of consistent training. And this is kind of where the Malcolm Gladwell concept. And by the way, it's not the 10,000 hour rule because people could do something for 10,000 hours and get zero expertise at it. Okay. It's actually called right. deliberate practice. Right. And deliberate practice means you have a clear goal in mind and then you go through a process that develops you into that person, whether it's personality characteristics and research shows that you can actually deliberately practice and become more extroverted or more organized or more creative. Like you can, those are actually generally skills versus traits. I would look at them as skills. You can become yeah. better at getting with people and you, but um, when was the last time that you as an adult or as a person put yourself through something that difficult or, or that extreme? When was the last time you did something for the first time? Uh, or how often do you go out of character? Maybe it's easy to get into rhythms and routines or to fall into the role. Like when was yeah. the last time you did something completely surprising in your marriage that blew your wife's mind? You know, like it's easy to just get stuck in a character. That doesn't mean that your personality it doesn't mean that you can just say, that's my personality. That's a really bad excuse. Instead, you could just say, I haven't had that much imagination lately Imagination lately, for my career or for my relationship with my wife. I haven't spent that much time visualizing and actively trying things that are new and, and original. Instead, I, I have been kind of just on autopilot, going through the motions. And uh, that, would be, that would be one of the major things of why people get stuck. So you talk about the proliferation of personality profiles, even to the extent that Facebook apparently, you know, uh, tried to limit them. They, well, they did ban them. Facebook banned the use of personality profiling in 2019 because 87 million people gave private information mm -hmm. often to the wrong types of people because they want to know what Disney character they were or what car that they were or like what superhero they were. Yeah. So then just the bubble up from that. Why? Why are we, uh, your book 
got me to thinking that I don't know if you answered it and I missed it, but why are we so enamored with this? Is it just a curiosity and a novelty or it is, is it some grasping of, you know, finding out who I am or or is it? People want to know, man. People want to know who they are. People want to, and what these tests really do is they give them a sense of identity. When you, when you have a label, when you have a concept, even you as an introvert, me as whoever, um, it gives you a way to explain yourself and to then connect with other people. And so people really want to know more about themselves um, so that maybe they can find that right career, find that right spouse. You know, like people, the assumption is that your personality is something to discover, which is why these tests are so, you know, seen as so useful. And once you've finally made that discovery of really knowing who you genuinely are, then you can live the life you were meant to live. You know, you can get the career that fits your personality. You can find that right fit match. Um, person who you're going to get married to and there will be no kinks in the marriage because it's going to be perfect. You two are just going to know each other's perfect personality so well. So yeah, I think people just want to understand themselves so that they can be effective at life and maybe be happy. They may think that they can't be happy unless they discover themselves. Uh, It's a very passive way of understanding yourself. It's non-creative. And obviously from a gospel perspective, if you think God's a creator, we probably are as well. Uh, And so it's a, it's a non, it's a non-creative approach to life, but it's also just, a non, it's a non-proactive approach, you well, know, rather than, you know, Victor Frankl, just as one quick thought, yeah, yeah, you know, he talked about how in the concentration camps, the people who were passive were the people who died. <laughs> but he also said that you needed hope and purpose towards a future in order to have, you needed hope in order for the present to be meaningful. And what he defined as the present, or I mean, sorry, what he defined as purpose was the striving and struggling towards a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. So I think even the same thing goes with purpose and passion is that people are looking for their purpose and they're looking for their passion, just like they would be looking for a personality type. Um, and I, I'm more on the Cal Newport side and on the Victor Frankl side, that it's not something you find. It's a freely chosen task that you invest yourself into that then gives your life meaning. It's interesting. I, I have another uh, endeavor in health and wellness. I've got another podcast called the True True Life Podcast. A lot of folks here listen to uh, we recorded a show this morning. We're talking about some of the tests that you take to figure out what f- you can t- take different, you know, different tests and they'll come out and say, okay, based on you, this is what foods you should eat. So we were playing yeah, like with biome these tests. Yeah. Like yeah. That. So we were taking those tests. I got one and it came back and said, okay, Kevin, according to our test, this is what you should and should not eat. And one of the shoulds that was in there was a food I'm, I'm allergic to literally. It said you, know, you shouldn't eat it. No, it said I should. It said I should do well oh. on this food. And again, coming back, uh, there's to, in, all of these tests are imperfect. They're imperfect. And it's a little bit lazy as, as a opposed to me doing trial and error and figuring out my performance, you know, on my own. I mean, so here you come with this book. So here, so what you just said, we are all clamoring to in a sense, know who we are. And my gosh, how many movies have been made for that? I'm going to go out and find who I am. And you're saying, no, we get to create who we are. You have to make choices. Take, well, taking that personality style and not being limited by it. So that's free. so we should be excited about that. But over here, we got to have some people feeling like, oh my gosh, if I'm just totally making up my identity, that's too, that's a big nut to crack. I'm going to decide who I want to be. Can it be a little overwhelming to some folks too, as opposed to over here, "Ah, it's my personality style. This is who I am. Like you said, it's lazy, but it's comforting. Uh, It could be comforting. Um, I think the identity in general, the more, the more you understand that you're even the, listen to this, even the past is flexible. So if you understand how memory works, um, 
in from a gospel perspective, the past is very flexible. <laughs> God can make very different meanings out mm-hmm. of our former experiences. But I think I think if you did a lot of inner work, if you did a lot of journaling, meditating, prayer, it, you realize that you're, for example, choosing to do this podcast. This is a part of your identity, but this is something that is relevant to your goals for one reason or another. Yep. And the goals that you aspire towards are the things shaping your identity. So people who have beliefs in God and things like that, they have a future self beyond this life. And that's part of their goals. Therefore, that's part of their identity. Therefore, that's part of their process. And so a big thing to think about and to question is, what am I actually, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is this what I really value? So one of the, one of the um, stories that I break down in this book, it's in chapter two on the truth of personality. I tell the story of Andre Norman. I don't know if you got that far. It's okay if you Keep didn't. going, keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so Andre grew up in, in the hood of Boston. And black guy, discriminated against. He was in school and uh, just grew up in the, uh, seriously, in the hood. And he had one teacher who gave a crap about him. And she was the band teacher and she would like defend him against the other teachers. And she invested him. She actually treated him with respect, treated him with love. And so as a result, naturally, he liked her. And he actually went to class and he paid attention in her class. Didn't pay any attention in any of the other classes. Didn't respect the teachers because they they treated him like crap. Well, she got him interested in the trumpet and he got going on the trumpet. And for two years he was in her class and it was the only class he liked, you know. And so, like, he invested in that, and he got really into the trumpet, and that became a part of his identity. He saw himself as someone who really enjoyed playing the trumpet, even though he had way other parts of his life, too. He was hanging out with criminals and stuff like that. But because it was a part of his identity, it was also a part of his purpose. He saw that there was potential for him to play trumpet maybe when he was older. Like, maybe that would be the thing that he did as a career. Um, Well, fast forward, like, a year or two, he goes into junior high. And so his trumpet was a big part of how he saw his future. Well, he had some new friends in junior high and they basically told him, dude, you can't carry around that stupid trumpet box. Like you, you either throw the trumpet away or you can't hang out with us anymore. That's like how the 14 year olds were treating him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he ultimately threw the trumpet away. He talks about how he threw the trumpet into the garbage can. And as soon as he did that, his sense of purpose was gone wow. as it related to going to school. As, and so he stopped going mm-hmm. to school. Like there was no, if it's no longer a part of your identity, it's no longer, there's no longer a reason to do it. And so he stopped going to school and his goal shifted rather than his goal being about the trumpet, his goal shifted to fully going into like fitting in with his friends, you know, and that ultimately led him to going into jail at age 18. And when he got into jail, he found that there was a hierarchy in the prison world, you know, and like, and so ultimately he decided that he was going to like, try to get up the hierarchy and he ultimately landed in solitary confinement. And there was a moment where like it did become his goal to be the the number one guy, like the king from his perspective, it was like, that's the king, you know, that's the king of the world is like being the number one dude in the prison. And so like he was there, he told me and like I interviewed him pretty hardcore many, many times to write this book. Um, But he, he ultimately um, he was getting ready to kill several people like white guys he was getting ready to kill white guys and by the way he was very black and white in his thinking which is often what happens to us when we're thinking in terms of stereotypes as well but he was like getting ready to go stab seven white guys in his solitary confinement unit and he had from his perspective what he called a spiritual experience uh he calls it his wizard of oz moment where he like it he was getting ready to go do it and it dawned on him for the first time that maybe the ultimate outcome of this quest that he's on to become the number one guy in prison is actually not that worthwhile. Yeah. 
and that what what he's basically said like at the end of the yellow brick road what do you find the wizard of oz is all smoke and mirrors it's a total sham and so like he questioned his goal therefore he questioned his identity went back to his jail cell and like asked himself some hard questions he ultimately you know through some some deep thought decided that he was going to go to harvard because that was the only college he'd ever heard of but from his perspective going to college would be the only way that he could stay out of prison. So he made Harvard kind of his new trumpet. Like he made Harvard his new purpose rather than yeah. being the number one guy in prison. He's like, I'm going to go to Harvard. Took him eight years to get out of prison because of how deep he was in. But when he made that his new target and therefore his new identity, he stopped, he avoided all the crap in prison. He started getting, he learned how to read, learned how to write. All of these things were because of his identity, which was shaped by a goal. Uh, and all he had to do was change his target and then identify with that new target. And that changed his behavior. It changed his perspective. It's kind of like the whole what you focus on expands concept. But ultimately, he did get out. He got a lot of therapy, got a lot of help, learned law, and then got out and took him like another 13, 14 years, but he became a, fe became a fellow at Harvard, became a lecturer there, all sorts of stuff because he changed his target. And so the question really is, why are you pursuing what you're pursuing? Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing shaping your identity. Why is it that you chose that? And maybe you could choose something else from a spiritual perspective makes a lot of sense when you make let's just say going to return to back to with god that really impacts your identity really impacts your behavior and therefore really impacts your personality it's an incredible story um you just the aspect of saying choosing who you are you wrote it was somewhere in the book choosing who you are accepting that is it makes you accountable and that brought me back again to faith i, I hear a lot of uh, I think in incredibly intelligent people more so than I arguing against faith and sometimes faith is amazing, man. Faith is, we all need faith. Well, we need sometimes I, too. sometimes I feel like when it comes down to it, the only reason they are is because they don't want to accept that level of accountability for their lives and for life in general. That's what I thought of when you came back to say, to say that who I am is by choice. And I can't, as you talked about, I can't look at the past. I can't blame that. I can't blame the limitations of that. It is opening myself up to be accountable. And so either on one side, again, that's daunting and scary, or it's incredibly freeing and unlimiting. And then it, I guess we're back to, well, what is your goal? Do you want to play small and be limited or well, not? It brings us back to the idea that personality and comfort zone are very similar. Okay. And that you are saying it's really it's really comforting just to be right here in my bubble, really comfortable to be in my story, really comfortable to say this is who I am and to be able to just repeat it on 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 autopilot. Really hard to deal with uncertainty. Yeah, with choice comes uncertainty, and in fact, that's an accurate statement that you can't make choices without uncertainty. You yeah. can't be courageous without uncertainty. I don't. I would say you can't have faith to some degree without uncertainty. Um, Agreed. Obviously, you can strengthen that faith, and it can become more and more firm, but. Um, going outside your comfort zone, trying new things, pursuing a bigger future. Yeah. When you step out of your typical way of doing things, even if it's just doing something spontaneous to improve your relationship, there's gonna be a level of anxiety or, or let's yeah. just say uncertainty and our brains are literally designed. We create memories so that we can predict the outcomes of our behavior. Our oh. brain, our brain is a prediction machine. And so when you're in a new situation, you experience more emotions because you're in a situation where you can't fully predict. The outcome is slightly uncertain. Yeah. And so as a result, you kind of want to go back to what's safe. It's a survival mechanism. But you know, when you're in a new situation, you can experience what are called prediction errors. So let's just say for an example, a two-year-old kid touches the stove. 
Mm-hmm. That was what's called a prediction error. They did not think that they were going to get their hand burned. Yeah. Wrong prediction. That's how you form really incredible memories. And that's how you expand your perspective of the world. And if you stop having prediction errors, in other words, if you stop learning, then you're going to increasingly become narrow in how you see the world. And what's interesting is that the research does show that as people age, they become increasingly less open to having new experiences, less open to making yeah. mistakes, less open to altering their worldview. Um, and so their story becomes overly solidified. Their identity becomes overly solidified. Their life becomes overly routinized. Yeah. Um, the roles that they're in, you know, so yeah, people can become very predictable. And also maybe they haven't done as much work reframing some traumas. And, you know, that's a, a skill that you can develop. We've all gone through hard stuff, but you can get very good at actively reframing and choosing better meanings of anything. I could choose whatever meaning I give to this experience. Right. And that's also a choice. You know, you can get good at framing and how and choosing how you see any event. You're okay, so you're hitting on this this again, this continual drumbeat of, you know, our personality is so much trained when we look at the past and how we frame it, that that's a training. And you made a statement. I, I made a note here, and it's my paraphrasing that we have surrounded. Well, let, me, let me give it. Let me give it a preface. I mean, we know that like with health and wellness, when you want to make a change or we're back to Jim Rohn, you are the average of the five people you hang around most. So to take Bingo. that, to that's ta- one of the biggest predictors of personality, by the way. Okay. Well, that's what I'm going to hit. You made a statement again. I don't know why I paraphrased it, but let me see if, uh, I said, we have surrounded and attracted people and circumstances that support our identities and patterns, which doesn't lend itself to change and evolving. So if we have people hearing this right now who hopefully do feel like, okay, this is freeing and, and unlimiting to take this and to say it's by choice, but you're saying, okay, to realize in essence, this is what I took from it, realize that you have created a lifestyle and people around to support it. your current identity and personality. Exactly. That's to support your current, to support your current, let's just say habits and routines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest predictors obviously of who you are and how you show up is your social group. <laughs> like, a lot of research on this and you know jim Rohn hit the nail on the head but your peer group is going to predict whether you're gonna be a drug addict or not whether you're gonna be an alcoholic whether you're gonna perform well in academics whether you're gonna be an entrepreneur and so obviously if you're thinking about your future self and that's honestly the place you always have to start is who is the person you want to be what are the circumstances you want to have you know you didn't just land there by accident you at some point saw yourself doing podcasts maybe you were influenced by many by many things, which you certainly were. But at some point you said, I'm going to start doing this mm-hmm. and now you're doing it. And, and, and you, and whatever future you have in mind, that's the one you're actively creating. Um, and so you need to really think who's the future self you want to be. This could expend beyond this life. This could be three years into the future. I really like the time frame of two to three years of who's your future self in three years from now, journaling about this every single day. Um, actively taking action steps. It's that whole urgent versus important conversation. But if you put yourself in the right frame of mind in the morning, meditate, pray, journal about your future self and think, what are the few things that I can do that would obviously move me in that direction? I would call it power moves. It could be a courageous ask. It could be just writing a blog post. Whatever it is that would clearly move you in the direction of your future self, that's you living consciously versus you living on autopilot or you living reactively, just waking up and getting plugged into your phone, getting plugged into your environment, and then just going through the motions and doing what's urgent. If you put yourself into a frame of mind where you activate, imagine, and then actively like eat the frog, you know, yeah. as some people would say, towards your future self, that's where the whole deliberate practicing comes in. And that's where you can then start changing your situation, your circumstances, and your attributes. 
And that's where you can start to become what's we, what we call in psychology psychologically flexible, where you can become more flexible and confident. You're less defined by who you were in the past. You're not so defined by your current situation. You have a growth mindset. You can become flexible in uncertain situations. Um, you can put yourself around new people and you can get great at being around them. You're fine being the dumbest person in the room, stuff like that. Like you're, you're, you're actively growing and evolving and changing versus just saying, this is who I am and this is where I'm at. I mean, this is a, you know, from my listener standpoint, this is a lot. This is a lot to digest, which, you okay. know, I will shamelessly say, folks, go get the book. It, this is a, a paradigm shifting workbook uh, in essence. I mean, there's even, about 150 journal prompts throughout this book, literally for reframing trauma. Well, it really is. I, when I, very clarifying your future self. As I went through it, I thought this is something to work through. And there's some pieces that I want to to work through. When you talk about you've got your you know, your second cha- chapter is transform your trauma, then shift your story. You've talked about you've hit on these enhance your subconscious uh, redesign your environment, but well, folks, you know, go get the book. If you want to take, if you want to, if you want this to do uh, the work that it can do in you and for you, you're going to need to go work through that. The last chapter there though, I actually, I read it and then it was kind of a was it the a, conclusion or the chapter on environment that you read the conclusion, the conclusion, sorry, the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I read it as I'm skimming through the first time and I kind of did an about take and wait, wait a minute. And you've hit on it, but I'm going to ask you just to uh, address it. Embrace your future to change your past. And because you know, I know up there you've got transforming your trauma. We've talked about trauma on this, how we can look at those things and we can reframe that. And I know a lot of people can hear that, but they can also struggle because it feels Pollyanna. I mean, what you know, where's the reality of the gravity of it? But I know the power. So embrace your future to change your past. Just address that for me. Yeah. It's really important, and this can be a hard pill for people to swallow in the beginning, that the past is not objective. The past is a meaning. The past is a perspective. The past is a story. And often those stories are shaped in negatively emotional experiences, which we would call trauma. Trauma is any negative emotional experience that shapes your identity. So like I'll give one example. So the story, I'll give very two. The story that you're talking about is a woman who she fell asleep and her ultimately her son four-year-old son died while in her care she, like he was playing she fell asleep woke up like 30 minutes later door was open yeah. found followed his foot trail and he had fallen into an irrigation canal and he died and ultimately she got blamed for it and that was very terrible you know she ultimately was very suicidal for a time and luckily um she had what we would call an empathetic witness. There's a really good quote that basically says trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what you hold on the inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So like often trauma means you had a negative event and then you buried it and you didn't get help <laughs> reframing it ultimately. But luckily for her, she had a miraculous experience. You could call it grace. You can call it whatever you want, but someone helped her realize that she was going to be okay, but that she had to choose to be okay. And ultimately she did. She committed to having a bigger future And now, you know, let's just say five to 10, 20 years later, she is and she and she does believe that that event, although it was trauma and although she wouldn't wish it upon anyone, she believes that it it happened for her and that it didn't happen to her. She genuinely believes that it was a blessing and that she can use it because she does use it. She has a lot of purpose as a result and she helps people all the time. She helps people who who have children die. And so she chooses to look at the past Although at one point she chose to frame it in a very negative way. It was the worst thing that ever happened to her. She now looks at it like this is the best thing that could have ever happened. Even though it's horrible to say that, her beliefs 
you know, you know, obviously she has spiritual beliefs as well, but she has chosen a better meaning. And so this is, um, the point is, is that the meanings that you've given to former experiences are meanings. You know, I'll give a very more simple example. Um, this is from an in-law of mine. Like I have a, an in-law who I met at a family reunion, an amazing woman, an absolutely incredible woman. There's one aspect of her story though that's really interesting. So I met her at a family reunion. She's in her 80s and I just wanted to get to know her. And so I was talking to her and I found out that this woman had always actually wanted like literally write and illustrate children's books. That was just one of her dreams. And I was, and I was like, well, did you ever do it? And she said, no, never, <laughs> never fulfilled it. I said, why not? Why didn't you ever write and illustrate these kids books? And she said, well, I'm not good at, I'm not good at drawing. I was like, oh, interesting. Like, tell me more. And she said, well, then she went and recounted a story. And she said, well, like, like and it must've been 40 years ago or something like that back when she was in her forties or something, but she took a private art lesson and there was like five or six other people in the art lesson. And ultimately what happened was um, during one of the exercises, the teacher like overly corrected her. And it might not have even been an overcorrection, but that's how she saw it. Right. He was correcting her and crossing out her stuff on the easel pad. And she felt very embarrassed because everyone was watching and she was wondering, why didn't he correct everyone else like this? And basically the thought that popped into her head because she was feeling all emotional and embarrassed was, I'm not good at drawing. And so she never went back. And that's the story that she continues to tell. But that, but the important aspect of this is that I'm not good at drawing isn't an objective fact. It was the meaning that she gave to a painful experience. Um, she could have given it all sorts of meanings. And the idea of re, 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 um, reframing is that you actively choose a different story. Like if she had talked to some friends about this, talked to her husband about it, maybe they would have said, you know, I don't think that he was actually trying to make you feel stupid. Uh, she might have even talked to the guy and he would have been like, I actually think your work's really good. I just was trying to help you. Like she could have gotten a different perspective. Yeah. So like there's a quote from Gandhi where he says, I cried when I had no shoes until I saw someone who had no feet. Hmm. That's the idea of one, no shoes is an objective. No shoes is a meaning. And so ultimately it's just the idea of choosing to look at your past from a different perspective, choosing to look at it in a more positive light and ultimately choosing to see it from a positive perspective, whatever happened to you. And that's a choice we all can have, you know, and it, I, I've, I've gone through it myself, man. My parents, I've, I've been through much trauma and I genuinely believe it was all exactly the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It's a big deal. Uh, I mean, Ben, I, uh, you probably know John O'Leary. I had him on the show a long time ago and uh, when he had his book that came out on fire and I asked him, you know, kind of a retrospect in the past because he does attribute so much of what he has now to that event. But I said, you know, going back, what would you have happened? It's because of the meaning he gave to the, the event. Exactly. And he said, I would have it happen again. And uh, honest, you know, admission is I struggle with that. Seriously, you would blow yourself up and lose, you know, your hands and whatever. I think for me too, I, I overly value my physical ability and, and whatnot. So that's a fear of mine to lose that. And for him to say that I would let that happen again. I struggled with it for a while. I talked about it with him uh, after the fact. And I've heard it from other people though. I mean, you're talking about that statement right there. It's not an objective fact, but the meaning that we give it that alone. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you a quote. This comes straight from a book called Time and Psychological Explanation, a deep academic book. But there's a guy named Brent Slife, a brilliant psychologist. And really, you kind of have to just understand how memory works. Like, check this out. Memory is a lot more about context than content. Let me give an example. Okay. Right now, we're in the middle of a, a huge revolution mm -hmm. trying to overcome racism in America, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's great. 
Um, here's here's what's going on though. So I don't know if you heard the story about Drew Brees that you know Drew Brees, who is the he's the. Uh, I saw same, some. I didn't yeah. dig. Well, into so I'll it. just tell you the story because it kind of explains the point. Yeah. Drew Brees said something that was insensitive, especially in the heat of what's going on right now, and it got him a lot of bad publicity. So he said something about like, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to, and I don't, I'm not going to say I have an opinion one way or another on this. I'm just trying to prove the point. He basically said, I'm not going to, I would never play with someone who wouldn't kneel to the flag. You know, he was just talking about okay. But what's interesting is, is that he literally made the same statement four years ago and no one cared. Oh. The reason people care right now is because of the, the current context, environment, yeah. the current context. So like, here's another example. I used the word right when COVID-19 happened and I was a little in, insensitive myself. I was, I wrote an email to my email list and I used the word viral just because it was a word I used, you know, like, I'm like, this article is going viral. And I got like 50 emails and people are like, we please not use that word right now. Wow. Like it was when it was like fresh, you know? And like, if I had used the word viral five months ago, no one would have cared. But, but the context is what determines the meaning of the content. And so when you change the context, you change the meaning. When you change the perspective, you change the meaning. And so, that's what happens to history all the time. We're always changing the meaning of former events and experiences because we're looking at it from the vantage point of the present. That's how memory works. So here's the quote. I just wanted to give you that. Yeah. So this is the quote from Brent's life. He says, we reinterpret or reconstruct our memory in light of what our mental set is in the present. In this sense, it is more accurate to say that the present causes the meaning of the past than it is to say that the past causes the meaning of the present. So what a lot of people do wow. is, is they blame the past on their present. They blame the past for who they are, but that's not how memory works. It's way more accurate to say that actually who you are in the present is determining how you view your past. And if you grow and evolve and choose to get more information or you choose to face it, you're gonna choose a different and better meaning and a different perspective and therefore your memory is gonna change. You're gonna view the past differently. From a gospel perspective, Someone, you know, could come unto Christ and completely be redeemed and they can view their past differently that, you know, that they were a sinner or whatnot now, you know, and, and but through Christ, you know, they could be redeemed. And so they're not going to be defined by the past anymore. And also they're going to see that they're not the same person they were in the past. And they're going to be able to hopefully view that as, you know, that God used that to help them grow or something. I mean, you're going to choose to view the past differently if you come to the gospel, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're not going to be defined by it. That's for sure. Uh this is why I had you on the show, Ben. Um, and I'll have to say, I, you know, I so strongly vet anyone and everyone on the show and, and the content uh, of what we're going to be talking about. And I agreed to have you on or desired to before I saw the book because I was such a fan of what you wrote in Willpower Doesn't Work. And the way that you communicate it is so palatable and so convicting. And I find myself sitting here, it's just like I did with your last book too, of thinking I want to go through this uh, with my family, with my wife, because I, I almost feel like I've known better, but I have, a, I have accepted, I have embraced my past. I've embraced those tendencies, propensities that have been put on me, you know, since I was a kid, God bless them, uh, you know, but saying, ah, Kevin's this, Kevin's that. And we take those labels and I see myself, but to wonder, just like we went back to our uh, initial little counseling session 20 minutes ago on going, Hmm, why am I worn out in social situations? Is it because I am a label or is it because no, this is what I do. So I've habitually done X, Y, Z. No wonder I'm worn out by it. 
It's just, and a, it's not, in, at least in whatever various social situations you're in, they're just not that relevant to your current goals or interests, mm-hmm. at least those social situations. Maybe some that are exactly what you're looking for would give you all the energy in the world. You know, if you're meeting like a hero, you know, like it's for some reason you're disassociating whatever the social situations you're going to as these are things that are, you're, they're not, they're not seen as valuable to you for, for one reason. Well, I'd rather just do this face to yeah. face. I enjoy yeah. so this. You don't more. see those as valuable. And if it's not valuable in your perspective, it's not getting you where you're wanting to go, then yeah, it feels irrelevant. It feels like, why am I wasting my time? This is draining. Yeah. Uh, man, I, I'm just, I'm just going to thank you folks. You need to go read the book. Uh, we'll be talking more about it. I think just like willpower doesn't work. I'll be referencing this, uh, over and over. If you go over. through this deeply, you're going to like this book a thousand times more than willpower doesn't work. I'm just telling you, okay. this book's n- enormously more important. Well, I'm, I'm literally going to go through it deeply. I'm really excited to talk to, uh, honestly, my wife and my kids. I feel We're like going to get you a hardcover. We'll make sure you have one. Okay, like, I, will, you know, I, I think I think you might have already given Connie an, uh, an address. If you haven't yet, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah. We're going to make sure we get you hardcovers and stuff. I mean, I want you to I want you to go through this. I'm just, I'm just glad I'm on your show, man. I'm grateful to talk to you. It's just a, it's just powerful, man. So I'm going to thank you for doing the book for investing. Uh, in that. And I will be doing all I can to help people hear this message. Cause I think it's one of the most freeing things I've heard. Honestly, excited about man. your future self, man. I'm I, excited what that looks like in all aspects of your life. I like the am, level of freedom, you know, freedom and responsibility, are obviously two sides of the same coin, but like, I'm super excited about, uh, I'm super excited about your future self and I'll put and that about you committing to that. And obviously the courageousness of pursuing it. I am too. I am too. And I'm sitting here thinking I've spent the past five days, uh, kind of, uh, sequestered writing my book. Um, and there's a couple spots where I'm going to go back in and reference this. So I'll, I'll, t- I'll be talking to you about that too, man. Just thank you. Reach ben, out anytime, dude. I always love talking to you. Thanks for being here. Uh, I am eager to get this out to everyone. Uh, Ben, it's been an honor. Friends, as you heard me say, I am digging into this book and message and really questioning what I think about myself and my personality. And honestly, I'm just excited. I have my family reading the book as well. Again, you can connect with Ben at BenjaminHardy.com and get his six-page future self checklist and a 23 minute training with the best science from Personality Isn't Perfect for free. You can get the book anywhere you buy books. Coming up in episode 798, the most helpful personal development resources. So everyone claims their personal development and self-help resource, you know, is just the best. Well, what do the consumers say? So in this show, I start off with a four and a half minute message from Zig Ziglar sharing the life changing power of consuming positive and equipping messages. Then Tom Ziglar joins me to talk through just an incredible list of real world testimonials. I asked the Ziglar audience this question, what personal development resources have you gotten the most out of? We got a boatload of responses and worked to talk through as many as we could. And from this show, you're going to hear the number one resources people have actually used in their lives to change their lives. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.